Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-461 of the Run Run Live podcast. And today we've got a great chat with Jackie from Sidelined USA, which is an organization that helps athletes deal with career-ending injury and rebuild for a positive life for going forward. Very interesting. And in section one, we're going to talk about Molly Seidel. Why? Because she's a great story on so many levels. So we want to talk about her. In section two, I'll give you a quick report on the century ride that I did last week with my running bros. Yep, I took a day off from work and went for a long ride with Frank, Tim, and Brian. And we rode out to Rockport and back up here in Massachusetts. And Tim made a movie out of it, if you want to watch. It's a four-minute movie on YouTube, and you can probably find it by googling a century in the rain. The big news from my side is that I had a follow-up appointment with my knee doctor, and the new MRI shows that my injury is not, not getting better. So let me explain, because I have a better idea of what this injury is now, and I think I can explain it better. So before, when I got the first MRI in May, he said I had a stress fracture. That's kind of misleading. It's more of a stress reaction. On the MRI, if you look at it, it's a cloudy spot, like a bruise, not a jagged crack or a break. I'm going to explain to you where this is using a an easily an easy visual. Picture a pirate flag with the skull and crossbones on it, right? So those crossbones on the pirate flag are the femur bones. That's the big bone that plugs into your hip socket at the top and rests on your knee at the bottom. And if you look at that depiction on the pirate flag, the end of these bones have these two pronounced knobs sticking out at the end of the bone. And that's not really what they look like, but it's a good visualization, a good illustration of the area I'm talking about. Those knobs on the end of the bone are chondral, and the left chondral on my knee has a stress reaction, this this spot, and this is inside the knob, inside the chondral, 
and it's a spongy material. And this is where my stress reaction is. So you could say it's like a persistent bruise inside the chondral. And why is it not getting better? Well, my theory is there's two reasons. Uh, The first is that it naturally takes a long time to heal. The second reason is that I'm a compulsive idiot and I won't stay off it. A couple other salient points about this injury. First, unlike a tendon or a ligament injury, this isn't going to create scar tissue. It's just going to eventually heal. So you can't really make it worse. The second is that you don't want to completely stop using it. You need to keep the joints in motion for it to heal properly. So it's not something where you just put your leg up in a cast and sit around for three months. And another point is that this area does get good blood flow, right? So it's not one of those things where it's going to scar over because it doesn't get enough blood. The blood flow will help it heal eventually without it getting chronic or anything. And the doctor says I can still bike, hike, and do any other exercise. You know, you can't reasonably stay off it. It just takes a while to heal. Can't run though. Shouldn't run. I can run, but I shouldn't run. So I'm going to back off on the running. There is a an invasive treatment where they stick a needle in there and they inject something into the spongy material in there, like a cement or a gel, and they basically fill up that space to create structure. But That sounds a bit, yeah, that's too much for me. That sounds a bit invasive. And other than that, if you look at my MRIs, my knee cartilage, my meniscus, all that stuff's fine. I got a little little arthritis in there, but nothing for a man of my vintage to worry about. So I'll just stay off the running for a few more months and give it a chance to heal, you know? And, you know, it has its challenges. One is that you already know there's no other exercise as simple, effective, and fulfilling as a good long run. I'm having to work really hard on my diet to make up for those 3,000 calories a week. Biking, swimming, lifting, they're great, but they require equipment and a venue. Running is open the door and go. And of course, Ollie can't do those other sports with me, so it's hard on him. Anyhow, that's my update. Now I just have to focus on staying fit and sane until it heals. So my friend Tom from my running club, he lost his fight with prostate cancer last week, and it left us all a bit shaken. So I'll tell you a Tom story. So you know I've been heart rate training for many years, right? And I remember posting my heart rate efforts and my zones and all that stuff because I post all that stuff. And Tom, who was always curious about new ways to improve his running and training, he'd quiz me on heart rate topics whenever we got together. And he was quite concerned because while my resting heart rate is like in the high 30s, his was in the mid 70s. So he was worried about that. So my zone four efforts were basically his zone two efforts. And I had to talk him down off the ledge and assure him that everybody was different and there was no normal. And I don't think he was happy with that answer. Uh, basically, I had to tell him that I was sort of a I was sort of reptilian in my heart rate and he was more of a hummingbird. But Tom, he was a good friend. He always showed up, he always helped, never complained. And we're going to miss him. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. 
Molly Seidel. Molly, good golly, Miss Molly, she's everything good about marathoning. I didn't watch much of this year's Olympics. I knew who was running, but I really don't have the time to sit and watch that soap opera awfulness of the network coverage. But I have to talk to somebody about how impressed I am by Molly Seidel and the lessons to be learned here. They could fill a book. If you've been living under a rock, let me fill you in. Molly is an American runner who took bronze in the women's marathon, and she's the third American woman to medal in the marathon at the Olympics, joining Joan Benoit and Dina Castor. Molly came in second in the marathon trials in her first ever marathon. And this Olympic marathon, where she finished third, was her third ever marathon. And the broadcasters had fun playing on that, exclaiming, in only her third marathon, which is a red herring. They make it sound like she wandered off a corn farm in Wisconsin, Forrest Gump style, and jumped into the race. She is not a neophyte. She is a very accomplished and very special athlete. She was national cross-country champion in high school. She was the NCAA national cross-country champion in college, which you can watch that 2015 race on YouTube. It's wonderful. I'd recommend all those New Balance cross-country races. They're great to watch. And she just dominates that race in 2015, start to finish. On Instagram, she wrote, other kids wanted to be astronauts or firefighters. I wanted to be a runner. Even on the hardest days, I try to remember how blessed I am to do the thing my 10-year-old self only dreamed about. And when she crossed the line in Tokyo, she screamed and said, hi, mom and dad, into the camera. So like we talked about last time we spoke, the Olympic officials in Japan moved the venue for the marathon north to Sapporo to give the athletes cooler weather. Well, that didn't work. The day of the race was in the 80s with very high humidity, giving you a real feel on the road of like 100 degrees. And the starter's gun went off at 6 a.m. local time under sunny skies, and the temperature was about 77 degrees, 25 Celsius. And then it climbed to nearly 30 degrees Celsius, or 86, near the finish. Very humid. So lesson number one about this story is how you approach adversity. We've all been there. You've trained your butt off, and now you're watching the weather. Instead of being that perfect racing weather, you get one of those soul-crushing, hot and humid days. And what do most people do? What do I do? Well... You adjust your goals down, you plan to take it easy, you try to survive. What does Molly do? Well, Molly gets psyched because she knows that the tougher the conditions are, the better she gets. It's that like that old Prefontaine theory, right? Make everyone suffer and see who wants it the most. Molly doesn't adjust her goals. Molly goes after it right from the start and makes everyone suffer. And she knows that when the race is about foot speed, there are faster runners. But when the race is about toughness, she's got as much as anyone. To quote, I wanted it as hard as possible. I wanted it hot and windy. Knowing a lot of these women run fast in conditions that are very good. I think I thrive off a little adversity. The course in Atlanta, at the trials, was tough 
hilly course. When the going gets tough, that's my strong suit. I try not to have too many expectations. It's just go out, stick your nose where it doesn't belong, and try to make some people angry. (laughs) My goal today was just go in there and for people to think, who the hell is this girl? (laughs) So she took a lead after the halfway point and surged time after time, stringing out the field, placing herself in a position to win with two miles to go. She established herself in the lead pack from the start, never dropping back more than a few feet from the front, occasionally to grab a water bottle. She looked strong end to end. She hung with the lead pack. She stayed with the breakaway pack. It was a magnificent race. So lesson number two is you can't win if you're not okay. Because the other story the broadcasters were dwelling on is that Molly had an eating disorder in 2016 that she sought help for. And our competitive sports culture tells us to push past the pain, to have grit, but you also need to take care of yourself. And Molly discovered that she runs better when she doesn't train as hard. And you can tell she's having fun. If you don't follow Molly on Strava, you should. She posts all her runs. Yes, even the Olympic marathon. You can see her splits. And I, you know, you should look at it because it's impressive. Uh, the heart rate was really impressive to me because she's basically maxed out the whole time. But then at the end, the last few miles, you can see that heart rate just climb and just peg as she closes the race. Amazing effort. So Molly's one of those athletes that finds peace in that kind of effort in the marathon. She's a warrior. Again, to quote, I love that slow grind and squeezing it down at the end. It is very different from some of the shorter races. I still love doing the shorter stuff, and I hope to still do shorter races to keep that sharpness. But man, I love this race. So Molly, for me... (laughs) Is everything good about running, the marathon, and the Olympics? She posted an easy run on the Charles River Path this weekend before she goes over to Falmouth, right, to race at Falmouth. She raced at Falmouth this morning. But when she got back from Tokyo, she went for an easy run around the Charles. And I look at that run on Strava, and I know exactly where she is. How many mornings have I celebrated my own training on that trail across the Longfellow Bridge? It's great. I can't wait to see what else she can do. But if she does nothing else, this is enough. Thank you, Molly. And now for today's featured interview. So, Jackie, why don't you uh, give us the 200 words on who you are, what you do, why are we talking? Yeah, I am a former sidelined athlete and now marketing professional. I work for Sideline USA, which is a national nonprofit that focuses on specifically medically disqualified athletes and helping them find meaningful way forward beyond the game, finding new pursuits, whether it be in sport or related to sport, and having it still be a part of their lives, even though they're limited with the physical things that they can do. That's kind of the synopsis of So how does that that work? How do you find people to work with? How do they find you? How do you, how did this come into being? Well, I started working for Sidelines last year. It was actually right before the pandemic hit. So that was interesting because we shifted our knowledge and expertise and, and decided to offer it to specifically COVID affected athletes because we have this 
knowledge base of trying to help people survive without their sport, or at least without being able to perform, obviously with all the cancellations and disruptions. So when I started, I dove right into that aspect of things. But I think the founder of the foundation is Cade Pinalto, and he and his mom, his mom is the executive director, Christine And uh, together they started this nonprofit because he was diagnosed with a heart condition. It was medically disqualified back in when he was younger. He was a basketball player. And then he found a new pursuit and said, you know what? I bet you there's a lot of other athletes out there that have been sidelined, whether it's due to illness or injury, they wanted to help people. And that's pretty much how this came about and how we get new The attention of new sidelined athletes is just simply by networking, connecting with athletes that we already know who are mentors that work with us. We like to say support groups or connection groups. Obviously, we do not offer any professional mental health resources. It's all just based off of connection and helping people find new direction just by talking to them but pointing them to other resources with some of our partners. So that's kind of how everything came about. Yeah. And sort of showing them an example of what's possible, right? Right. Exactly. Right. People who have gone through it. Because I would think that the, the folks that reach the pinnacle, we just came out of the Olympics, right? So the folks that reach the pinnacle of their athletic careers are a very, very, very small sample of the people who start out on that journey when they're kids or teenagers. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So this is probably probably the norm, not the exception. Right. Exactly. Right. Yes. So some folks will make it to high school and they'll have a sport that they can take with them into life and maybe play pickup ball or something. Some folks will make it to college, maybe the same thing, right? Right. Some folks will make it professional. Yeah, it's, it's always the same, though, when you lose. I think it's very, like I was saying before, I think this is universal. You lose something that's part of your lifestyle style, and it right. leaves you sort of lost and empty, right? Yeah, exactly. We talk a lot about athlete identity and healthy identity. And I know for me, with my personal story and how I kind of came across sidelined was I was looking for a way to help other people that we're going through something that I went through similarly. And I had finally been at the point of acceptance and I got there on my own, but I can't imagine if I had a program like sidelined or like a community of people that had similar stories to me or could relate to me, how that would have helped me in the moment when I was actually participating at the college level. And it's so beneficial, all the storytelling that we do, it really helps these athletes see themselves And it helps them open up more if they are struggling or if even years post, you still haven't found that thing that's missing. Obviously, if you're a retired athlete too, it's very relatable. What I mean is retired from organizational sports, not just obviously staying in shape and working out, but you lose an element there when you're not a part of a team anymore, or you feel like you're a part of something bigger than you. And you're always trying to replace that. Or if your identity was was tied to that for a while, I know for me personally, I didn't even realize until I got injured how much my identity was tied to my sport. Walk us through your story like, and what the emotional arc was for you. To keep it brief for the beginning part, obviously, I was a multi-sport athlete, so I was a very active kid. I loved playing multiple sports, and uh, then I, I was strictly reserved to soccer for a little bit. And then once I got to the high school level, I started playing lacrosse and fell in love with it. And then I had this goal in my mind that I wanted to play division one. And so I ended up getting a scholarship at Temple University, 
which is in Philadelphia, and uh, had a roller coaster ride of an experience physically and mentally. I started off successful as a freshman. I went in with this like underdog mentality, thinking uh, it's going to take a lot for me to be successful here. And I think that helped me in, in a lot of ways and pushed me in a lot of ways to work even harder. And then ended up starting my freshman year and then coming into my sophomore year, I was feeling really great and feeling like in the best physical shape and the best mental place I could have been in as an athlete. And then at a practice, we were doing a conditioning drill. Uh, It was like a handball conditioning drill. And I don't know if it was the type of turf I was playing on or just fate or what, but I, uh, upper body went one way, lower body went another way. And then I ended up blowing my knee out and tearing my ACL. So at that point in my life, I had never really been injured before. I had a concussion here and there. I rolled my ankle a few times, but I never had something like this. So it was definitely an experience that like shocked me. And after that, the process of isolation and like being removed from your team and going to rehab instead of going to practice and even the the physical side of it, the frustration when you look down at your leg and one of your legs is like lost all its muscle and you have to just start from scratch and build that back up again. It's a sad position to be in as an athlete. I wouldn't wish that um, injury on anybody, but um, long story short, I ended up having a a comeback year, did well, but just never really got back to that like level that I was playing at before. And then I got a fifth year out of it because I missed a whole season from my first injury. And four games into my fifth year, I tore it again and blew out my knee, blew out my ACL, also buckled my meniscus. And I kind of didn't want to handle this second injury the same way I handled the first one. I just had this feeling like I was weak. And obviously I went through depression and anxiety and that disconnect. And I didn't want to feel disconnected from my team. So I just kind of suppressed all the feelings from the second injury. And eventually when I graduated, it carried over into my life and It was something I just refused to address because I was so, this mental health stigma, I was so worried about what people would think and don't pity yourself, like get over it. All the things that you you don't want to hear from people when you consider yourself a good athlete that works hard. Then I ended up working in a bunch of sports jobs after that, working in graphic design and marketing and was always searching for something, began coaching. And that was my new pursuit. It was like a way for me to help other athletes directly and have a hand in that. And I still coach to this day on top of doing what I do for work. And it's just like a perfect balance and went to therapy, you know, dug deep on all those feelings from college. And now I'm at the extreme acceptance phase with it, where it's just like, all I want to do is just help other people get to that point, no matter how long there's a lot to unpack there. I think one of the things is just the mindset of an athlete makes you very difficult to get to that acceptance, right? Because you're yeah. so self-critical of you just need to suck it up and work harder, mm-hmm. right? And yep. sometimes that's not the answer, right? Right. And the structure around sports is such that that's the whole theory around sports as well, right? So that's the right. influence, that, that's the message you're getting from everybody else as well. So the support system you had in sport doesn't exist anymore. Right. You're without any place to hang your identity, right? Mm-hmm. So that leaves people, um, yeah, feeling a, a loss like any other loss, right? Right. And the other thing that is interesting is, and you coach people through this process, right? 
So you got to get through that loss process and move on to whatever the next thing is. Right. And there's a high probability that you'll be aligned with something to do with sport, right? So take that same energy you had playing the sport and put it into coaching or supporting or marketing the sport, right? And that's one of the things you coach people to do. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. Exactly. (laughs) Yep. And uh, was the other point was that you have to stay physically active, right? So as an athlete, there's more than just a mental piece. There's this integrated physical and mental thing that goes on, right? So Mm -hmm. your, your whole system is used to this cadence. And when you pull the physical piece out, it actually chemically affects you. Yes. Right. So, so do you, how do you talk people through this stuff? Well, the first step usually is we tell them, we tell any athlete that it's not going to be an easy process. I think that the idea that you're going to talk to us or you're going to find something and everything's just going to click right away. For some people, it does work. But I think just having patience in the beginning is really hard. I mean, you're going from this perpetual state of readiness to just like an abrupt stop, like you just said, physically, which affects you mentally. So the first process is like opening up and actually being honest with yourself about how you're feeling and trying not to be ashamed of that. That sounds a little sensitive, but it's it's a good thing. It's a good thing to kind of check in with yourself and be like, why does this matter to me so much? Why is this affecting me so much? And then you can process how to fix it and how to act on that. So the, the first step is just acknowledgement, acknowledgement that you have a right to feel that way, acknowledgement of giving yourself grace and making sure that you are patient with yourself in the process, that this is just a a new journey that you can attach some intentionality to it and really think to yourself, what can I do to make myself benefit from this versus thinking that this is something that happened to me? But you have to go through the loss first, right? Right. You have to to let yourself mourn. Right. Um, but I think exactly. one of the key things you guys talk about is the, the talking, you know, the communication, right? Talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. Because again, when you come out of the, t- especially a team sport, you lose all those people to talk to, right? You've lost all your connection there. So yep. find somebody to talk to. Right. And then the physical side of it, that's going to be up to each individual, dependent on what their limitations are, what their illness is, what their injury is that's going to be probably a little bit longer of a process to try and figure out because you may never get back to that peak physical level that you were once at, which a lot of retired athletes can relate to. But it's just finding healthy ways, realizing that sport doesn't have to be this performance-based thing. It can be something that just keeps you active and healthy. And there are ways to do that safely despite your illness or injury. For me, for example, I had to resort to, I couldn't do as much long distance running because my ACL is still partially torn. So eventually when I get that fixed one day, I'm sure that I'll be able to do a little bit more, but I had to kind of readjust and say, what are the things that I can do? Let's stop thinking about the things that I can't and find these new things that I can do. That could be anything from walking, hiking, biking, swimming, it can be anything that's just healthy and going to keep me in shape and keep me motivated just and to sort of fill the void as well. Right. right? Exactly. And also that, that biochemical part of it, right? Your body's yeah. used to that. So you got to find a way to feed it. The challenge right. you get when you transition, you go, okay, I'll bike instead. Then you, you know, there's each one of these activities has its own learning curve. Right. So you have to be patient enough to work through 
the part where it isn't really um, exercise yet and get yeah. to the point where it is fulfilling. All right. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then the other bit you were talking about is, is finding something else. It doesn't have to be sports, but I've, I've seen people from your organization, like they'll go bananas and CrossFit or <laughs> something else, right? They'll just like totally switch a hundred percent of their energy into another sport. Right. right. Just to have that same, I guess, hit, but you can do that with other occupations as well. Right. So you can throw that into your job. You can throw that into some right. other pursuit or hobby. Right. right? You have yeah. examples of that. Yeah. I think I know what you're talking about with the CrossFit person. Cause she's, she's awesome. She's also a spokesperson, Val Jones. There's people that are working for a sports broadcast company, or there's like a million different things you could do from coaching to being an athletic trainer to just like so many things in the sports world, like sports marketing, uh, getting involved in the creative side of that. And then not even just career stuff, but just changing your mindset to realizing what you went through as a sidelined athlete and being, you're a lot tougher than you think you are. Like right. having to tell yourself that in other aspects of life, when other things are thrown at you that aren't even work related. And I actually get that now. We didn't used to get it so much like 20 years ago, but now I get a lot of that where people go, Oh, you're one of those. So you know how to create a plan, show up every day and do it and meet a hard goal and suffer for it. Okay. Mm -hmm. We want you, right? So right. people are seeing more and more that it's not a skill set. It's more of like a, I don't know what you would call it, a personality type, but yeah. to be able to do that is sort of proof of it works in other places as well. Right. Right. You did this in your sport. So why can't you translate that to real life experience? Right. You know, there's, right. there's so many examples of that. Um, right. So the, the learning for people is don't be afraid to bring that stuff up. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Somebody asked the question, how are you going to make your sales quota? Well, let me tell you how I <laughs> qualified yeah. for Boston. Right. Yeah. When I applied to one on my interview for my first job I had out of college, um, I was obviously still in school when I was interviewing for it. And I had just torn my ACL and I had crutches and I had my, uh, this big, like hunky knee brace on and it was such an icebreaker. It was great. Yeah. I mean, even if I wasn't in the best mindset, they were like curious. They were like, what happened to you? What did, yeah. like, what did you go through? And I kind of told them the whole story. And they were, people look at athlete or something related to that on your resume or anything like that. And they think, okay, you can handle it. You can right. handle a lot. So right. that's utilizing right. that in life is something that we try to teach our athletes. Yeah. You're self-motivated, right? You handle stress well, well, reasonably well. Yeah. Right. <laughs> handle the pressure and and you're good in game situation. Right. right. So yeah, yeah, there's, there's a lot. And I think that's important people to realize those skills are portable. They're not isolated. Right. And you, you talk folks through that. So how does the organization mechanically, how does it work? Are you giving money to people? Are you giving counseling? Are you, I mean, how's, how's that work as a, we obviously can't give like expert medical advice, but we do have right. connect, connections to like, medical like mentors. You have right. like mentors. Okay. Right. Exactly. So, um, and even, even that word can kind of get, we always want to be clear that it's, it's a more of a connection thing rather than a, you're right. getting medical advice, but the way it works is nine times out of 10, somebody is searching for resources and they find us and they reach out to us through our contact form and they get connected with us. And yep. depending on what their story is, we have a library of these connection group mentors and we have a library of these medical 
experts that have written resource articles for us. And there's a whole platform on our, our site with a bunch of different types of articles written by athletes, yeah. written by counselors written by athletic trainers, a million different perspectives. And then there's like a guide that really tells you through our website and through us, through that connection, we will give you these things to read, or we will connect you with a person, whether it's one-on-one or in a connection group. Yeah. And then it, it goes from there. It's, it really starts a lot with the communication. And then we encourage that if they need more help or they haven't seen a therapist before, and they're kind of like, toggling. Should I do that? Should I pursue and find somebody? And we'll be encouraging about it and tell them, sure, look at all these sideline athletes that have done that and it's helped them. So yeah, from the resource articles to our, we have a team sideline podcast that was mainly dedicated to the COVID related topics, but really it translates to, like you were saying, it translates to everything. And we have our sideline stories podcast that you can listen to, which covers each really compelling stories from all these sidelined athletes, from ice skaters to dancers to um, football players. It's got a huge realm of a diverse realm of people and stories that are very relatable. And I think the one, just to take you out here, the one thing that I find very useful for these sort of situations is not as when you're an athlete in a program, you're looking at next week, next month, right? These are my workouts. These are my games. These are my races. Yeah. But then when you get sidelined, you have to look at a longer horizon. You have to say, this is my life, right? Yeah. And that helps people to put it in perspective. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And and we usually say that obviously with the recovery process from that mentally and physically, just take be patient with yourself and take it day by day. But ultimately you need to see that you're way more than you're a human. Like you're way more than an athlete. Human comes first. We've been hearing this a lot lately, especially with the everything that went down with Simone Piles in the Olympics. So I couldn't agree more with it that it's just putting yourself first and thinking about the bigger picture of life versus just tying yourself to one thing that defines you. Okay. So how do folks find you? By going to, if you guys have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, just look up Sidelined USA or www.sidelinedusa.org. It's the easiest way to get hold of us. So yeah. And the blog posts are great. The athlete blog posts are great. All right. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, Appreciate it. Of course. It. Thank I think you. This is, I think you're doing good work. Thank you so much. Appreciate you're it. You're helping people, right? Yes. You're saving <laughs> That's lives. <what> love <laughs> That's very intrinsically rewarding. So good yes. for you. Yes. Thank All you. Right. I'm going to let you go. Enjoy your week. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. The Long Ride. I had my head down. I was turning over the pedals. The secret to distance riding is not effort or even fitness. It's turning the pedals over. I looked back over my shoulder and didn't see the other guys. Sometimes when I get in the zone, I gap them. We were 70 miles or so in, and I felt fine. I just wanted to be finished. There was a fork in the two-lane road where I had my suspicions that we would go left, but I couldn't be sure, so I coasted to a stop and waited for them to catch up. As they pulled into sight, the heavens opened up again, and it began raining, pouring those sheets of summer rain. They cranked by and merged left, using their momentum to leave me lonely. 
I stood up in the pedals and pushed my old bike back into motion, accelerating hard through the downpour to catch up. I began laughing, comically, shrieking really, like a witch's maniacal laugh as I clawed through the water in hot pursuit. <laughs> a middle finger to the rain gods. And then, out of an open second-story window from my right, came a rejoinder to my laugh. A witch's laugh poured out into the rain as I screamed by, joining me in the hilarity. A cheering fan of stupidity. A manic echo. The laughter of inmates escaping from the asylum at last. And that we were. Thursday I wrote a century, which is a hundred miles, by the way, with my old running buddies. And it wasn't a big deal. I've ridden longer rides and races, and as I've told many people, I've done way stupider things than that. But it was great to get out with my friends and have an adventure in these times of home confinement and injury. Brian, Frank, Tim, and I have been running together on and off for the past 20 years. We met training for the Boston Marathon and looking for company on those long runs. And we've been out on the roads and raced together all around New England. But we're getting older. At some point in 2019, we started biking together instead. Frank had his second hip done. Brian was taking some time off from the marathon monkey. And I managed to injure my knee going into 2020. Between us, I think we have over 50 Boston marathons. Brian was a bike guy when he was younger before he switched to marathoning. Frank is a touring biker who does a week-long cross-country ride with the guys from his band every year. I've been dabbling in triathlon for the last two decades, and Tim's been riding his bike to work. Over the course of this spring and early summer, we would meet early in the morning on most weekends and do a long ride adventure, 20, 30, 40, even 50-mile jaunts out to a diner somewhere for breakfast. And then somewhere along the way, they decided we should do a 100-mile ride. A couple weeks ago, they decided it would be either this Thursday or Friday, depending on which day looked better weather-wise. And then a week out, they decided Thursday. But the weather as it usually does, did not cooperate. As the day approached, instead of the nice day, it was going to be the rainy day. There was much chatter around this, but never the thought of not doing the ride. Like I said, we've done stupider things. We gathered at Frank's in the morning and did some fine-tuning, took some pictures, and set off. I made sure to apply a liberal amount of squirrel nut butter to my undercarriage. It's not fatigue that'll make you miserable in these long efforts. It's skin loss. And we were battling construction sites and rush hour traffic as we headed across the eastern side of Massachusetts, along back roads towards the sea. And it didn't take long for the rain to start. It wasn't a cold rain, but it was a steady rain. I forged a cedar house shingle about six inches wide out of Frank's barn and bungee corded it to my luggage rack as a fender to keep some of the water from spraying up my back all day, and it worked pretty well. Understand that the four of us are not cyclists, per se. We're runners. So there's no tight peloton formation. We amble along at 12 or 13 miles an hour, and we spend most of the time chatting. It turned into a bit of an adventure, as my back tire kept going flat. I had three flats in the first 30, 40 miles. The guys were threatening to call AAA and send me home. 
it was strange because these these were new tires and new tubes. Uh, we stopped at the first bike shop and got some more tubes, and we needed them because we kept having to swap them out. And after the third flat, we stopped at another bike shop in Beverly and had the guy look at the tire to see if he could find anything. And he looked it over. He didn't see anything. He put it back on. But I flatted out almost immediately after leaving that bike shop. So we went back to that guy and said, just put a new tire on. I bought a new tire and put a new tire on. And that fixed the problem. So, of course, all this meant we lost hours <laughs> out of the ride and had to spend a ton of time standing around in the rain changing flats. But, you know, we're guys. We like that kind of stuff. And like I said, these were new tires. But I guess like everything else in COVID times, the quality of that tire wasn't up to snuff. So we proceeded a few more miles, then Tim flatted. So this was a challenge because Tim is riding an old Fuji from the 80s that we found. <laughs> we found this bike on a ride one day. Someone was giving it away free by the side of the road. We decided it was an upgrade from Tim's Walmart commuter bike, so we got it for him. <laughs> but this bike's so old, it doesn't have the quick release on the wheels. You need a wrench to get these off, and Tim didn't have the right size wrench. He was actually carrying a wrench, but it was a rug wrench. Luckily, I always carry a patch kit, so instead of swapping out the tube, we just patched it in situ for him. And after that, we made good time. We made it to our halfway point in Rockport without incident. We had lunch, stopped raining. We are drying out a bit, and we uh just a few hours behind schedule. But when Frank went to get back on his bike after lunch, his seat fell apart. So there's another 30 or 40 minutes while we waited for Frank to figure that out. And then finally, on the we're back on the road, and Frank says, hey, i got to pull over and go into a Walgreens and buy some lube because I'm having a little, uh, a little rubbing problem. See, I told you, you got to lube up on these long rides. And then we made a brief stop at Frank's niece's house, and it turns out her husband is a serious biker, so I got a couple of uh, salt tablets off of him, which is something that I forgot to bring. So that was good. Not that I was sweating much in the pouring rain. After that, we went into an interesting section, which was a canal path. So it was all grass and sort of muddy because it was raining, right? And with the rain, that single path mud section was slick as ice. And Brian had his uh, phone out and he was trying to video and he did the nice slow motion tumble. Uh, and that made us all feel better because he was the only one who was unscathed so far. So we figured that got that out of the system. After that, uh, nothing else of moment happened. We were just turning over the pedals, cranking back through rush hour traffic and more pouring rain. And we made one last pit stop somewhere in the 80s because Frank wanted to get some Gatorade. Uh, Nutrition-wise, I brought a couple of plums with me. I had one in the morning, and then I had one in the afternoon. I had some coffee in the morning and a nice Greek salad for lunch. Other than that, I was relying on my fat stores. I was starting to get a bit calorie poor when we made that final stop, and I accepted a Lara bar, a date bar from Tim, because my stomach was getting a little rumbly, and that definitely helped. So our next challenge was that the sun was setting on us. We had only been riding for eight hours, but it managed to work another five or so hours worth of downtime into that. But we would not be deterred. We muscled our way into Lowell 
and arrived at the Navigation Brewery just as it got dark. And the tipsy patrons there, they were rather entertained to see the four of us bedraggled men wander in and order beers, and they couldn't believe we were sitting uh, 99 miles into a ride. We were the entertainment for the evening, I guess. And meanwhile, Frank called his wife and had her bring over a headlight for the last three-mile jaunt in the dark through Lowell over to Chelmsford and back to Frank's house. So fortified by a cold pint, Frank took the lead with his headlight, and Brian brought up the rear with his taillight, sandwiching Tim and I in the middle. We wended our way through the city streets and back into Frank's driveway for a total of 103 miles. So you could say it was a challenging day, or you could say it was a perfect day. Eight-plus hours of pedal turning salted into a 13-hour experience. I wouldn't trade it for any other day. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have had a career-ending injury that has forced us to the end of episode 4-461 of the Run Run Live podcast. Now to find some other way to burn 3,000 calories a week. So I went down to the local pond. Yeah, I know, you might call it a lake, but in New England, we call them ponds. And interestingly enough, (laughs) to me anyhow, pond... It's an old English word, originally meant an artificial or man-made body of water. So the original English word was pound. And we still use that term, that word, pound, in New England in the original sense with the phrase lobster pound. So if you go to buy live lobsters, you buy them at the lobster pound, or up here, of course, would be the lobster pound. But that means it's a tank of water that you keep live lobsters in. Anyhow, I went down to my local pond after weightlifting at the gym this week, one night, and I went out and swam a half mile. And it felt good. I felt out of shape, but my form was good. Nothing to worry about. I managed to find my goggles and my earplugs. (laughs) I did find a swim cap, too, but it disintegrated when I tried to put it on, and my wife thought that was hilarious. I'll have to dig out the old tri-wetsuit and see if that disintegrates, especially when it starts getting colder. Right now, that's not a problem. We had a mini heat wave last week, and the top couple feet of water in the pond is very warm. It's still cold under that, so you can dive down if you want to cool off. I was a little apprehensive to swim out into the middle of the pond, Since COVID, the local news has been filled with people drowning. It seems, just like in my trails, people who wouldn't normally be at the local water holes, if you'll excuse the turn of phrase, are diving right in. Many of them have gotten into trouble. So it got me thinking that, you know, I haven't swum for a couple years, and I'm just the kind of guy they describe who overestimates his ability in these things. But like I said, it felt fine. I had some cramping in my feet, and my form got a little sloppy as I got tired. But for the life of me, I don't think drowning is an outcome that I need to worry about. I think what gets people in trouble is that they get a cramp or something, and then they panic. And when you're in the water, panic is bad. The more you fight the water, the harder it is to stay afloat. So anyhow, swimming. Good workout, swimming. Good workout. I do have a couple of races still on the calendar. I'm still going to go down to the Burden Hand Half Marathon, even though I'm going to stop running altogether at this point. Uh, I'll hook up with my Galloway walk-run friends and have some fun. Then I have the virtual Boston Marathon in October, so it looks like I'll have to full-on walk that. 
How about that, huh? So looking for any ideas on a good 26.2 mile hike I can do. Maybe collect some donations for prostate cancer. How about that? Sounds like a worthy cause. Lemons and lemonade, my friends. This morning, I thought my club was having a brunch run, so I picked up a traveler of coffee at Starbucks. That's a box of coffee, and I headed over. And it wasn't until I passed them all out on the road, they were running, that I realized that I'd goofed up and the brunch run was next weekend. So no worries, I just parked my truck down at the town hall in Groton and set up a coffee aid station for when they came in. Then I mounted up on Fujisan and rode the river trail end-to-end for a quick 25-ish miles. So that's it, man. you got to keep showing up and make lemons out of that lemonade. Every day is an opportunity, and I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him Right. We wended our way through... Ollie, be quiet! <laughs>